Chapter Fifteen of A Mating in the Wilds by Otwell Binns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A face at the tent door. Look! cried Helen. Look! They had almost reached the cabin on the return journey, and were full in view of the lake. As she cried the words, she pointed over its snow-laden surface, and Stane, looking in the direction indicated saw that which made his heart leap. A dog-team was coming up the lake, with a man on snowshoes packing the trail in front. "'Who can it be?' asked the girl in some excitement. "'The owner of the cabin, for a certainty,' answered Stane, conscious of a sudden relief from the anxiety which the morning had brought. "'Then,' answered the girl, quietly, "'you wait to welcome him while I go and prepare a meal.' She passed into the cabin, while Stane walked down to the shore of the lake. The traveller, whoever he was, was making directly for the cabin and watching. Stane saw that he walked wearily, as if he had come far, or was suffering from some weakness. It was quite an appreciable time before he saw Stane standing to welcome him, and when he did so, he gave a joyous shout. Stane answered the hail and a few minutes later, when the man halted his dogs, he saw that he was mistaken in concluding the newcomer was the owner of the cabin, for he was garbed in the winter dress of the Northwest Mounted Police. Cheerio, said the policeman in greeting. Where's Jean Bernard? Stane shook his head. Don't know. Is Jean Bernard the owner of the cabin? At this question, the policeman glanced at him sharply. "'Don't you know that? Who in thunder?' "'Stain? By Christopher!' As he made the recognition, the newcomer held out his mittened hand. "'Well, this is a pleasure. Don't you know me, old man?' Stain looked at him as he shook his hand. "'I think I do,' he said. "'You're Dandy Anderton, aren't you?' "'Used to be,' laughed the other. Now I'm Trooper Richard Allen Anderton, of the R.N.W.M.P., and no more a dandy. But I'm mortal glad to see you, Stane, particularly as I am a little knocked. I hurt my shoulder this morning, as he broke off suddenly as the sound of movement came from the cabin, and asked quickly, You've got a mate? Yes, answered Stane, with a short laugh, as good a mate as any man could have, a mate that happens to be a lady. A lady? Anderton whistled. Up here? By Jove, you've both got pluck. Well, you see, Anderton, it's not exactly a matter of choice. We were stranded together, and this cabin happened to offer itself. But loose your dogs, and come and be introduced. Right-o, replied the policeman. I'll be with you in two jiffs. Stane entered the cabin to prepare Helen. As he did so, the girl looked up from the stove. Is he the owner of our palace? No, he's an old Oxford acquaintance of mine, who is now in the mounted police. Then we shall not suffer eviction, she laughed, and to Shane it seemed that there was an odd note of relief in her voice. No, but he spells deliverance. You see, if he can't do anything for us himself, he can carry the news of our whereabouts to Fort Malsum, and... At that moment, a whipstock hammered at the cabin door, 
and a second later Trooper Anderton entered. For a moment he was a little taken aback by the girl's appearance. Then Stane made the introduction. "'Miss Yardley, Mr. Anderton!' "'Miss Yardley?' the policeman cried. "'Are you Sir James Yardley's niece, who was lost a few months ago?' "'The very same,' answered Helen, smilingly. "'There's a reward out for your discovery, five thousand dollars, no less.' "'I didn't know I was worth so much,' laughed the girl. "'Your uncle makes it, and half the trappers in the north are keeping a lookout for you, for it is known that you were found by someone.' "'There is my savior,' interrupted Helen, nodding towards Stane. "'Lucky fellow,' laughed the policeman. "'How did it happen?' "'Perhaps Mr. Stane will tell you later,' answered the girl. "'And if he doesn't, I will. But I don't want this moose steak to spoil.' I take a pride in my cookery. She laughed and turned again to the stove. Both the men watched her admiringly for a moment, and then Anderton asked, Been up here long, Stane? Stane gave him an approximate date and explained the situation by recounting his accident. The other nodded sympathetically. You were lucky to have Miss Yardley with you. I had a narrow shave myself this morning. Just as I was starting from my last camp, a tree that two minutes before looked as stable as a pyramid collapsed. It caught me on the shoulder and knocked me flying. Lucky thing I fell clear, but it gave me a nasty jar, and my left arm is a little out of action, with a soreness. I oughtn't to have taken the trail this morning, and wouldn't, only I'm in a tremendous hurry. A running quarry, you know. "'Who is it?' asked Stane. "'A breed wanted for murder. "'He's been running for months, making this way, "'and there's an idea that he sought sanctuary "'with his mother's tribe at the top end of this lake.' "'Ah, then there is an encampment up here?' "'Yes, didn't you know?' "'Stane gave an account of the mysterious visit "'of the previous night, "'and of the stranger they had seen in the wood that morning.' and the policeman listened carefully. "'The girl's a puzzler,' he said. "'But the stranger may be my man. He knows his life is forfeit, and he's ripe for any sort of crime. I guess I'll move on after him when I've had a rest.' "'We'll go with you,' answered Stane thoughtfully. "'We may be able to get dogs from the camp.' "'It's just possible,' agreed Anderton. "'If the Indians will sell, if not, then I'll carry the news of you back to Fort Malsum, and the factor there will send for you like a shot. He was silent for a moment, watching Helen as she laid the table. Then he said hesitatingly, By the by, Stane, did you ever get to the bottom of that unfortunate affair of yours in England? No, was the reply, given with some bitterness, but the jury did. Oh, rot! exclaimed the other. Nobody who knew you really believes that. I have met one man up here who apparently does. Who is that? Ainley, you remember? Ainley? Why, man, he... He broke off suddenly with a look at the girl. Yes, said Stane. You need not mind Miss Yardley. She knows I have been in prison. Yes, answered Helen quickly, and I am very sure he ought not to have been. It was a damnable shame, broke out the policeman, but the facts were against you at the time, Stane. The handwriting experts. 
"'Oh, the likenesses were there, right enough,' interrupted Stane. "'And I certainly had been in Harcott's room alone, "'and I suppose in company with his checkbook. "'Also I had lost rather a pot of money on the boat race, "'and I am bound to admit all the other incriminating circumstances. "'Yes, but you don't know everything. "'Long after you, uh, went down, "'Jarlock, who was in our set, told me something about Ainley. "'What was that?' asked Stane quickly. "'Well, it was just at that time Ainley was broke and borrowing money right and left, and that he had forged Jarlock's name to a bill. Jarlock became aware of the fact through the bill being presented to him for payment, and he tackled Ainley about the business. Ainley owned up, and Jarlock let the thing go, for old acquaintance's sake. But just about the time of your trouble, he left the varsity and went on a trip to the Cape, and it was a full year after, before he even heard what had befallen you. It made him think of his own affair with Ainley, and when he met me months afterwards, he took me into his confidence. We talked the matter over carefully, and knowing you as we both did, we reached the conclusion that you were innocent and that Ainley was the guilty man. Any evidence? No, nothing beyond the matter of the bill. We judged by general principles. Ainley always was something of a rotter, you know. Stane laughed a trifle bitterly. He's by the way of becoming a personage of importance today. But I think you're right, the more so since I encountered him up here. He gave a brief account of his meeting with Ainley, told how he had waited for him on two successive nights, and how on the second night he had been kidnapped without any apparent reason. The policeman listened carefully, and at the end nodded his head. "'Looks fishy,' he commented. "'The fellow was afraid of you.' Then, after a moment, he asked, "'Your question? The question you wanted to ask Ainley, I mean, what was it?' It was about a sheet of paper with some writing on it. You shall see it. He felt in his hip pocket, and producing a small letter case, took out a thin packet wrapped in oiled silk. Opening it, he unfolded a sheet of foolscap and handed it to the other. It was covered with writing, and as Anderton looked at it, he saw that the writing was made up of two names, written over and over again, the names being those of Hubert Stane and Eric Harcroft. At first the character of the handwriting of the two names was widely different, but presently the separate characteristics were blended with a distinct leaning towards those of Harcroft, and some of the characteristics of the earlier writing of Stane's name still survived, though at the bottom of the sheet only Harcroft's name was written, and that a dozen times. The policeman whistled as he studied it. Where did you get this, Stane? I found it in a copy of Plato, which Ainley had borrowed from me. It was returned before the forgery turned up. And the paper slipped out when I was going through my possessions after my release from Dartmoor. What do you make of it? It is perfectly plain what the meaning of it is, answered Anderton with conviction. Whoever did this was blending two handwritings for some purpose or other and the purpose is not difficult to guess. That is what I felt when I saw it, 
and when the significance of it dawned on me, I set out to find Ainley that I might ask him the meaning of it. He had left England, and no one whom I could ask knew his whereabouts. Things were very difficult for me at home, and so I came out here, stumbled on Ainley, and you know the rest. Helen Yardley had listened to the talk of the two men without speaking, but now she broke in. I do not wonder Gerald Ainley did not keep his promise to see you at Fort Malsum. I only wonder that when he arranged for your deportation, as he surely did, he did not arrange for your death. He does not know I have this paper, answered Stane, with a grateful look towards her. But when I do meet him... He did not finish the sentence, and after a moment the girl announced that the meal was ready. As they ate, Anderton glanced from time to time at the man whom he had known as a careless youth at Oxford. He noted the hardness of the eyes, the graying hair, the deep lines of the face, and was moved to a sudden burst of indignation. Confound the man, Stane. If I were in your place, I should be tempted to shoot him. But that's too good for him. I will do that which will be worse for him, answered Stane quietly. I will make him own up. The two who heard him, looking at his resolute face, had no doubt that he would keep his word. And as each reflected what he must have been through, Neither was sorry for Gerald Ainley, or had any compunction at the thought of what might happen to him. The meal was finished without any further reference to the past, and after a smoke, Anderton threw on his furs and went outside. Presently he returned and announced his intention of going up the lake to the Indian encampment. The weather is going to hold, and it really is of the utmost importance for me to find out whether my man is here or not. I'm not in the best form after my accident this morning, but there's nothing else for it. And if the fellow is left, I shall have to follow at his heels and wear him down. It is the only way. Duty is duty in my force, I can assure you. Stane looked at Helen. Then he said, We will accompany you, Anderton. You represent the law, and in your company we are much more likely to receive attention and get what we want than if we go alone. While further, if this mysterious visits we have had were hostile in intention, the fact that we are known to you will tend to check them. Something in that, agreed the policeman. When Anderson had harnessed his dogs, they started off, making directly up the lake, and within two hours sighted about a half a score of winter teepees pitched near the shore and with sheltering woods on three sides of them. As they came into view, with the smoke of the fires curling up in the still air, the policeman nodded. The end of a journey of two hundred miles, or the beginning of one that may take me into the barrens and up to the Arctic. Lord, what a life this is! He laughed as he spoke, and both those who heard him knew that he found the life a good one, and was without regret for the choice he had made. As they drew nearer the camp, two or three men, and perhaps a dozen women, with twice that number of children, came from the teepees to look at them. And when the dogs came to a halt, one of the men stepped forward. He was an old man, and withered-looking, but with a light of cunning in his bleared eyes. 
"'What want?' he asked. "'Me, Chief George.' The policeman looked at the bent figure, clothed in mangy-looking furs, with a dirty capote over all, and then gave a swift glance at his companions, the eyelid nearest to them fluttering down in a slow wink. A second later he was addressing the chief in his own tongue. "'I come,' he said, from the great white chief, to take away one who is a slayer of women. It is said that he has refuge in thy lodges. The Indian's dirty face gave no sign of any resentment. There is no such man in my lodges. But I have heard there is a man who is a son of thy sister, with a white father. The old Indian looked as if considering the matter for a moment. Then he said slowly, My sister's son was here, but he departed four days ago. Whither went he? The Indian waved a hand northward, towards the great barrens. He took with him all our dogs. Done, said the policeman, with a quick glance at Stane. It is certain there are no dogs here, or we should have heard or seen them. He turned to the Indian again, while Stane looked at Helen. You heard that, Miss Yardley? Our exile is not yet over. Apparently not, agreed Helen, smilingly. Stane again gave his attention to the conversation between his friend and the Indian, but half a minute later, happening to glance at the girl, he surprised a look of intense interest on her face. She was looking towards a teepee that stood a little apart from the rest, and wondering what it was that interested her. Stane asked, "'What is it, Miss Yardley? You seem to have found something very interesting.' Helen laughed a little confusedly. It was only a girl's face at a tent door. I was wondering whether the curiosity of my sex would bring her into the open or not. Stane himself glanced at the teepee in question, the moose-hide flap of which was down. Apparently the girl inside had overcome her curiosity and preferred the warmth of the teepee to the external cold. He grew absorbed in the conversation again. But Helen still watched the teepee, for the face she had seen was that of Miss Godeed, and she knew that the thought she had entertained as to the identity of the woman of mystery who had fled from the neighborhood of the cabin was the right one. Presently a mittened hand drew aside the tent flap ever so small away, and Helen smiled to herself. Though she could see nothing through the tiny aperture so made, she knew as certainly as if she herself had been standing in the teepee that Miss Godeed was watching them with interested eyes. Unconsciously, she drew herself upright and flashed a challenging glance towards the invisible spectator, visioning the Indian girl's wild beauty and matching it as a jealous woman will against her own. Not till Stane addressed her did she take her eyes from the teepee? Anderton's through, he said. His man has gone northward, and as you heard, there are no dogs here. We shall have to go back to the cabin. Anderton tried to persuade the chief to send a couple of his young men with a message down to Fort Malsum. But the fellow says it's impossible in this weather to make the journey without dogs, which I dare say is true enough. Then said the girl with a gay laugh, we have a further respite. 
Respite? he said wonderingly. Yes, from civilization. I am not absolutely yearning for it yet. She laughed again as she spoke, and Stane laughed with her, though he did not notice the glance she flashed at the closed teepee. Then Anderton turned abruptly from Chief George. I'm sorry, he said. I have done what I could for you, too. But this noble red man either won't or can't help you. I shall have to push on, but the first chance I get, I'll send word to Factor Rodwell. If only I could turn back. Please don't worry about us, Mr. Anderton, interrupted Helen cheerfully. We shall be all right. Upon my word, I believe you will, Miss Yardley, answered the policeman in admiration. He looked down the lake and then added, No use my going back. It will only be time wasted. I will say good-bye here. Keep cheerful, old man, he said to Stane. You'll work clear from that rotten business at Oxford yet. I feel it in my bones. Helen moved a little away, and the policeman lowered his voice. Lucky beggar, you'll ask me to be best man, won't you? Best man? Pooh, man, I've got eyes in my head, haven't I? Without giving Stane a chance to reply, he walked towards Helen. Keep cheerful, Miss Yardley, and don't let Stane get dumpy about the past. I think you have effectually saved him from that, she answered quietly. Jolly glad if I have. He's a good fellow, is Hubert. Till our next meeting. Au revoir, Miss Yardley. So long, Stane. The next moment he turned to his dogs. Mush, mush, Michelle. The leading dog gave a little yelp. The harness tightened, and the sled began to move. Ten seconds later, the man who carried the law through the frozen north was ahead of his sled, breaking the trail, and Stane and Helen had turned in the direction of their cabin. The girl, with one last glance over her shoulder at the teepee, at the opening of which Miskodeed's beautiful face had now revealed itself, her eyes following the man whom once she had done her best to help. End of chapter 15